Well, let me again begin today by setting the scene, establishing the, the setting or the context for the passage that we're going to look at. It's a new section. Uh, actually, verses 9 through 14, the rest of Zechariah form the final section of this book that we're looking at. And the fact that it's a new section, I think, is indicated by the opening words of chapter 9. The oracle of the word of the Lord. Uh, and the way he puts it together, it's only done three times there, chapter 11, and, and then one other place in Micah. An emphasis upon the fact that this is, the word oracle, by the way, means a burden. A burden that is coming to us from God. Now, the temple has been built. Again, I, I share with you the fact that you've got to read contextually and, and you've got to understand that time sometimes moves quickly. Uh, we saw in the first chapter where all of a sudden it was two years later. Uh, now, it's about 40 years later. And we know from Ezra chapter 6 that the temple, in fact, has been completed. And now, 40 years later, a burden comes. Because what has happened in those 40 years is that even though the temple has been built, the people haven't been living obediently. Uh, one of the things that just amazes me, and I, I know it's true in my life, but you see things in others before you see them in yourselves. But one of the things that just absolutely has amazed me in, in this last reading that Jesse and I are now doing through the Old Testament is so often in 1 Samuel, 1 2 Kings, and now in 1 Chronicles, how it talks about how one king left and another king came in and, and this king might be living the way he's supposed to be as opposed to the previous king who wasn't. But even now with the new king, they haven't taken away the high places. They've still allowed those other places of worshiping, traditionally worshiping other gods, to be there even though they are striving to be obedient. It's a failure to understand that it's not a religion. It's to be a way of life. We don't go to the church to practice religion. If anything, we should be coming here to get refilled, fueled up, motivated, encouraged, to go out and do ministry. A way of life. And so what we see then in, in the first eight verses of chapter 9 is what is actually a prophecy of judgment. It begins with a, a little, again, a little bit of a prophecy formula, but it's a speech that's directed against the traditional enemies of Israel including the Arameans, the Phoenicians, the Philistines, and some of the ancient 
terms and names are used to remind the people that the old practices, the old enemies are still around and still causing us problems. I don't like some of what I read in Judges. But I do know that what God told the people to do in Judges, they didn't do. A lot of the enemies were allowed to stay and they weren't supposed to. They were to be driven out and or annihilated. And that didn't happen. And exactly what God predicted would happen, did happen. You allow them to stay. You allow your children to intermarry with them. Your children will be drawn away to their false gods. And that happened. In fact, sadly, that happened with the greatest, one of the greatest kings of Israel. Did it not? Solomon. What happened to Solomon in his later years? He was influenced by one of the wives that he married who wasn't an ethnic Jew, who wasn't a believer, who wasn't a proselyte. And so he started getting involved with her in her worship of false gods and false practices. So verses 1 to 8 talks about how God is going to in fact come and bring judgment on those nations and finally drive them back out. And that brings us to our text for today. Chapter 9, starting with verse 9, and it's going to sound really familiar since you've already heard Zechariah 9.9, but you're going to hear it again. And it should sound familiar uh, because of how it gets used later. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. <coughs> Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare I will come to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I'll stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the word of the Lord will appear over them, and His arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. They shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched with the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of His people. 
For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. May God add his blessing to our reading of this word. What we see in these verses is first of all a proclamation about the coming of the Prince of Peace. Uh, this passage that we're looking at this morning on Palm Sunday was quickly recognized by the early Christians to have importance regarding the fact that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. I believe that it easily uh, began to be used in the New Testament time because, and, I, and I'm not sure, I haven't really seen any evidence uh, in terms of Jewish rabbinic literature, but I know that as the disciples began to look back on the life of Christ and all that had taken place, and the Holy Spirit is starting to encourage them and remind them. I am sure that what they saw and experienced in that last week of Jesus' life, the cross, the resurrection, and yes, even the triumphal entry, began to remind them of these passages in the Old Testament that were very clearly fulfilled in the life of Jesus. I mean, Matthew 21 and John 12 both refer back to this prophecy of Zechariah in chapter 9. And I believe more and more that the cross is what needs to be the center, the primary, the most important principle in our understanding and interpreting the Old Testament especially Isaiah, and also in terms of how you and I should live. I think we should be living victorious lives. And I don't think we should be living victorious lives because of the empty tomb. You say, well, that, that really sounds strange. Well, maybe I can clear that up next Sunday when we're dealing with the empty tomb. I think we should be living victorious lives because of and in the manner of how Jesus showed us what living victoriously really means. It doesn't mean having the big powerful hand like Rome had and using that old ugly cross to embarrass, to torture, to victimize people. No, it means coming into relationships on a donkey. Coming into town riding on the foal of a donkey. And as Zechariah looks back, I mean, as, as the, the disciples look back at Zechariah's prophecy and start thinking of this in terms of Jesus, how natural would it be for them to pick up on the same four points that Zechariah is emphasizing here? 
that first of all, this one who is coming is going to be righteous. He's going to be just. He's going to be impartial in his judgments. And also probably the idea of being triumphant. Secondly, as the Prince of Peace, He's going to be showing Himself to be a Savior. He's going to demonstrate that He is coming to save the seek and seek the lost. Thirdly, Zechariah said it's going to be a prince who is lowly. That's the hardest thing hardest thing for people who grew up Jewish who understood the Scriptures from that viewpoint the hardest thing for them to understand the Messiah was to conquer by military force and drive Rome out he was to come into town riding on a white horse not on a donkey. He wasn't to die. They had had other people claim to be the Messiah, but they failed and they died. I heard a Jewish woman, not just ethnically Jewish, but still an Orthodox practicing Jew, say, I do not still accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior and as the Son of God. But I'll tell you what, people who have the love of Jesus in their hearts and truly live the lifestyle that He taught as a rabbi are the ones who are making positive, significant impact in this world. And she did say, you can pray for me. And I said, I will. She's not far. She's not far. Those people heard a pronouncement. Behold! They were to rejoice. Why? Because their king was coming. Verses 1-8, to the oppressor had bypassed Jerusalem. Now their king was coming into Jerusalem. And he's going to ride on a donkey. Now, let me tell you this. Those people that Zechariah was riding to and those people that Matthew and John were riding to would have known the significance of riding into town on a donkey. Solomon. History, go back and read it. David's about to die. And so what happens? Well, one of the other sons, actually the oldest son, decides, I'm gonna, okay, I'm going to do what I need to do to make sure I get the kingdom. And when the word gets heard about that taking place, Nathan the prophet quickly gets to Bathsheba and says, hey, we got to do something. Here's what's going on. And so they get David before he dies to make the pronouncement that Solomon is to be the king. And they do what? They put Solomon on a donkey. 
and he rides with the people proclaiming him to be the king. And as was told to us, a foal, a young animal, not yet ridden, still running around behind the mamas. And on that Sunday, when Jesus arranged the precise fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah, He did it because He wanted to declare Himself to be the coming Messiah, but to be the Messiah who was coming in peace, not in force. The Messiah who was going to tell us to lay down our weapons and to be willing to sacrifice our lives. I don't, I don't want my wife and my kids to suffer. But I'll tell you what. I would be honored to suffer and die for the sake of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus knew the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 9. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And what was he to be called? Yes, wonderful counselor. Yes, mighty God. Yes, everlasting Father. But listen to me. Prince of Peace. But also notice that Zechariah saw three qualities of the kingdom of that coming priest. Prince, I mean. It was to be a peaceful kingdom. In the day when the Messiah enters Jerusalem, God would cut off the war chariot, the horse, the battle boat from its people. All of the apparatus of war would disappear from the kingdom ruled by this prince. Let's go to Thursday. He's being questioned by Pilate, the representative of the power of the fist. Is it true that you're a king? Jesus says, yeah, but my kingdom's not of this world. If it were so, don't you think people would have risen up to do battle? You see, I don't understand. I really don't. I try to be sympathetic, but I don't understand how anybody can think that anything that happens with the nation of Israel physical nation of Israel today over in the Midwest has anything to do at all with the Bible and the prophecies. The church is the new Israel, scripturally speaking. We are the people of God. And we're living in the last days and we've been living there ever since Jesus ascended. The writer of Hebrews says, in these last days... Peter says there will be scoffers and they are these people that are doing this. And the Antichrist is never even mentioned in the book of Revelation. It's only in John's letters and John says there are already Antichrists here. It's to be a kingdom of peace. It's to be a united kingdom. That's what he's talking about when he talks about Ephraim and Jerusalem. Uh, 
Those people who were cast off, according to Hosea, as not my people, the Gentiles, were now going to be joined together in this new kingdom. And isn't that exactly what Paul was talking about taking place in the church? That the partition separating Jew and Gentile has been broken down. Ephesians chapter 2. It's to be a universal kingdom. All of the kingdoms of the world are going to hear the proclamation. And so, starting with verse 11, he talks about the coming deliverance. In that glorious day when the Messiah's kingdom would stretch to the ends of the earth, the Lord would reign, would redeem the daughter of Zion, which at this point is speaking about the people of God. And what he says he would send forth, in our words, he's basically saying he's going to free her prisoners. And the figure of the pit in which there was no water? You want to understand it? Go back and read Genesis chapter 37. Go back and read Jeremiah chapter 38. That's where Joseph was put, wasn't it, by his brothers? A waterless well? Wasn't that where Jeremiah was put? A waterless well? And in such a pit, a person would inevitably perish if in fact they were not drawn out, freed. And since the context here is, I believe, messianic, the bondage that's being spoken about is spiritual rather than physical. Listen to me. You don't believe me, that's your thing. I can't make you believe anything. But I can sure share with you enough evidence to tell you we are living in a time of severe spiritual warfare. There are demonic people. There are demonic forces all about. There are demonic tools. Some of them have caused me pain. I love the internet and what can be done positively with it. But I'll tell you what, the internet is a dangerous weapon and tool. People are being taken advantage of, being lied to. A person over the internet can tell you anything and you don't know it. You have no way to know it until you actually can see face to face what that person is doing. And young people are finding out that some of the young people they're meeting in these chat rooms aren't even young people. They're old. Nasty predators. We're living in an evil age, a demonic age. An age where people have no problem at all taking advantage of others because they can hide behind all kinds of screens. What Zechariah is saying is that God would extricate the daughter of Zion that's a reference to the people out of that pit of sin 
And he says, by the covenant blood. Covenant blood, isn't that an interesting concept? You see, I think the disciples, when they heard that, they weren't thinking about the Old Testament and the many, many references due to blood with the covenant. I think they were thinking about the shed blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And how God would redeem His people from the bondage of sin in that way. And so in verse 11, it begins with an exhortation of the prisoners of the hope. Paul often talked about himself as somebody in chains, but being in chains for the hope. They looked forward to the Messianic kingdom. And they were urged, actually, to turn to the fortress. Now, I'm sure that some would have taken that to be the fortress of Jerusalem. But at that time, the city was lawless. Wasn't much safety in a city without walls. It was essentially uninhabited. Now, the fortress, the stronghold, is God Himself. And for us, it's incarnated in Jesus, our Messiah. And during the difficult times of persecution, which in fact would be unleashed on the people of God from Zechariah's time up to John the Baptist, 400 years... Those people needed to know that they needed to take refuge in God. In God. And if they did that, there would be a coming victory. That's what he's talking about in verses 13 to 15. That would be the result. Yeah, there was going to be opposition, but God would triumph. And He would do it by using the people who He had chosen. And, and the tongue changes. All of a sudden now, it's I'm going to bend Judah. I'm going to use Judah and Ephraim as my bow. I'm going to make sure, literally, that I am going to fill them with plenty of arrows. And in the latter part of the verse which actually I think should have been structurally made it as a couplet with the preceding. It looks like it's poetry in the Hebrew. He says, I'll stir up your sons, I'll arouse your sons, and I'll make you like the sword of a mighty warrior. I mentioned a Greece, by the way, in this connection is not without significance. Uh, if you look at some of the writings of the rabbis, uh, one, for instance, Rabbi Rashi, um, in reference to this verse, says, After Antiochus takes the kingdom from the hand of the king of Persia, and they ill-treat you, I'll bend Judah that they may be to me like a war bow, and they shall make war against those nations. By the way, in the 2nd century before Christ, during the period of the Seleucid kings, the Greek kings, huge armies again and again put down the rebellions of the Jews in the Palestine area. But the son of Mattathias, uh, known as the Maccabees, one of those intertestamental books, good historical book, uh, probably not inspired, probably not uh, 
to be understood in that way, and so we don't include it in our canon of, of the Bible, although uh, it is in the Roman Catholic canon. Uh, the Maccabees did rise up. And in fact, do you know what their number one weapon against Greece was? Their willingness to be martyred. Seven sons of one mother, all martyred. Sacrifice. A willingness to do with that. And the metaphors change then in verse 16 to sheep and precious jewels. But also something else that changes. We get the phrase, on that day. It occurred back in chapter 2 and chapter 3. But it now appears frequently in the remainder of the book. Chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14 all have references to on that day. What day? I think the change here is to the day of the Lord, Judgment Day. A day in which God will judge the nations. He'll restore the faithful among the covenant people. And as verse 16 clearly focuses on the actions of God and the priority of God, He's going to be saving the people His flock. And two figures underscore that new relationship. First, the idea of being God's flock. God is a good shepherd. But secondly, the people being precious to Him like jewels in a crown. Redeemed. Now, viewing the scene of the redeemed people, the jewels, the jewels I mean, the crowns, going and coming in their own land, the prophet cries out, Zechariah cries out in an exclamation of amazement, how great is God's goodness. This is the background for the little kids lining the streets with the adults, with the branches, Crying out, Hosanna. The King is coming. How great is His beauty. <coughs> Not only how great is His goodness, how great is His beauty. And then, kind of in a concluding way, the reference to how God is going to make the young men flourish and the new wine, the virgins, uh, the symbols of prosperity and abundance. So, as we think about those coming crowns, where does that, where does that place us? Let's go all the way back to our call to worship. It is easy. It is easy to line the streets with the crowds and cry out, Hosanna, Hallelujah. But it's not very easy on Thursday and Friday when the crowds are hollering out, Crucify Him, 
to say no. That is the Messiah. That's the Messiah. And to learn somehow in that, and here's my challenge for you for this week, to learn to live somehow in that idea that we need to be living in gratitude. Gratitude if we're persecuted for the sake of the kingdom. Not just persecuted because we've done something wrong. We do something wrong, we deserve to be persecuted. We treat somebody wrong, we deserve for them to be angry at us. We deserve for them to, to not show us respect if we have treated them in, in lack of respect. But if we've been persecuted for doing right, then we need to have gratitude and to realize the glory and the beauty of understanding that we are the flock. We're the sheep. And yes, the shepherd is willing to lay down his life for us. Let's pray. Father God, today as we think about the coming of the Prince of Peace, coming into our lives, first of all, before He can ever come into the world, coming into our attitudes and our behavior before He can ever come into the lives of people that we encounter, because they really don't care how much we know until they're able to experience and understand how much we care about them. And so today, as we think about that great entry of Christ into Jerusalem in a humble way, a lowly way, a sacrificial way, Going in and yes, even cleansing the temple, stopping the sacrifices, not violently overturning tables, but, but doing that which was necessary to stop the sacrifices because the sacrifices weren't being done in the right way, with the right attitude. Forgive us when we go about <coughs> proclaiming our religious deeds and our acts when our hearts are not right. And help us to learn how to live in gratitude, modeling the Prince of Peace in all that we say and do. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our hymn of commitment is Heavenly Sunlight. We'll be singing just two verses. Let's stand this way.